Hey guys, and welcome to the Hunt and Land Podcast, where we cover rut reports, waterfowl migrations, land market dynamics, habitat management, and anything else that the American landowner or wannabe landowner might want to know. I'm Joe Baia. I'm sitting across from uh, Clint Flowers. Clint, what are you spraying in your mouth, man? Or a septic sore throat spray? Yeah. That's a uh, sign of the times. That's not a good sign. We got the duck opener in Louisiana this weekend. Uh, you're not feeling sick, are you? Uh, this weather and temperature change is getting me a little bit, but I'm uh, keeping everything nice and lubricated for the duck calls and so I can be able to uh, call those big ducks in for three or four hours. I understand. So where are y'all headed out of? Uh, out of the St. Bernard Parish outside New Orleans. Okay. So this time of year, you'd be dealing mostly with gray ducks, scadwalls, and... Teal, would you, will you get some mallards in there this time of year? It depends on where you are in the marsh. There's a lot of summer mallards scattered around as far as green heads. It, it just depends. you got to be in the right spot. and Then we'll have some canvas back and pintails show up in the camp for the real lucky guys. For the most part, we tend to be majority teal this time of year, especially with as hot as it is. And, and sometimes a whistling duck will roll through if they're still around. Awesome. Yeah, that's, that's exciting. I, I love sitting in the duck blind with some good buddies and keeping an eye on the sky and we're going to find out where those ducks are in Alabama uh, here in a little while with Seth Maddox. And uh, we're going to be doing a little rut report as well, talking to Matt Brock on the uh, Black Warrior Wildlife Management Area. So uh, let's get right into that. Let's, let's talk to Seth Maddox. Seth is the uh, Migratory Game Bird Coordinator for the Alabama Department of Conservation and Natural Resources. Seth, welcome to the show. Tell us a little bit about what you do for the state. Yes, sir. So uh, I manage all the uh, migratory game birds for the state of Alabama, mainly uh, doves and waterfowl. These are our big two uh, species that we, we focus on here in the state. And so uh, we do a little bit of everything from banding to surveying to, you know, regulating the hunts, habitat management, doing a little private land technical assistance work as well. Well, we've got the duck opener for Alabama starting on uh, weekend after Thanksgiving, November 23rd. So we're looking forward to having you on throughout the season and getting an idea of where those ducks are. So tell us a little bit about it. What's the forecast for the 2018-2019 uh, season looking like? Uh, looks pretty good so far. These cold fronts uh, that we've had in October and November so far have pushed some birds into the area. So uh, we're starting to see the, popular, the ducks show up in the area, and uh, it's looking good so far. Uh, we're very weather dependent here in Alabama, so we we rely on the cold weather up north to push birds in. Uh, we need uh, freezing temperatures and some snow cover up north to really push birds in. Uh, last season was a really good season. We had you know sub freezing temperatures in Alabama that are a little unusual for the state. The harvest showed that you know we had an increase of about 85 percent from the previous season, which is a little warmer season. So. If we get cold weather like we did last year, I think we'll have a really good season. Wow, 85% increase. That's uh, yeah. that's significant. It is very significant. A combination of weather factors. And, and then tell me a little bit about uh, about the public uh, public land opportunities we've got uh, in Alabama for waterfowl. Yeah, so we have 22 WMAs in the state that allow waterfowl hunting opportunities. And we have six of those that are our primary waterfowl-focused areas. Three of those in North Alabama. We have the Jackson County Waterfowl Management Area up in Jackson County. We have Swan Creek Management Area in, in Limestone County. We have Seven Mile Island in Lauderdale County, David K. Nelson, Demopolis WMA in Hale County, and then we have our Mobile Delta WMAs down in Mobile and Baldwin County. So those areas total about 150,000 acres, and those our primary focus on those areas is waterfowl. So we were manipulating the habitat and uh, really trying to get uh, 
great habitat and great hunting, hunting opportunities on those areas so that uh, hunters can get out there and enjoy the opportunities that we have available. It's, you know, it's just a couple of weeks away. And tell me a little bit about that habitat manipulation. Give me some specifics on what you guys do to provide better duck habitat. Yeah, so we have uh, managed impoundments on some of those units. So in those impoundments, we, we you know flood them during the winter time, we, and uh, during the summer we take and we take the water off. We uh, do moist soil management, which is uh, natural vegetation management, and we also plant crops in those areas. So corn, grain, sorghum, millet, you know, that provide a lot of seed and habitat for waterfowl. We flood those back in the winter for hunters to enjoy and uh, take advantage of. We also have some green tree reservoirs, which is you know flooded. Uh, oak trees where their acorns are produced and they drop in the water and ducks really take advantage of those. We have a lot of habitat types on these areas, you know, open water, backwater sloughs, emergent marshes, uh, scrub, shrub, swamps, and uh, bottomland hardwoods. So across the state, we have uh, a lot of different habitat types. And, uh, you know, if people want to get out there and enjoy these, they're uh, they're available to do. And uh, and we, we uh, harvest a lot of birds in these areas. It's a good time to get out there and do it. Uh, on our WMAs, you know, we primarily harvest gadwall. That's our number one bird on our WMAs. And then ringnecks and uh, mallards are next to statewide. The bag's a little different. Uh, wood ducks is our number one bird statewide. Uh, a lot of uh, beaver swamps and, uh, and and cattle ponds. So a lot of people get out there and hunt on their private property and, and kill a lot of wood ducks statewide. So it's uh, a lot of different habitat types across the state and, and a lot to enjoy. Talk a little bit about those gray ducks, the gadwalls, and tell tell me a little bit about their habitat. They're a puddle duck, correct? They are. Uh, so they like shallow open water. They primarily feed on submergent vegetation, which is vegetation under the water. They eat a lot of plant matter, especially, uh, you know, milfoil, eelgrass. And so they really concentrate in these areas in shallow water sloughs where there's a lot of vegetation in the water. So it sounds like we need to look for, you know, water depths in the probably the 18 inch or less range for, for gadwalls. Yeah, somewhere for, you know, for, for dabbling ducks, it's somewhere between 12 and 18 inches is a really good uh, starting point. And any, any more than 18 inches is, is really deeper than they can dive but if if the emergent vegetation is is right there at the surface and it's a little deeper than they can get to to get to the ends of those stems so it's really good habitat up there especially in north alabama and then in the delta and south alabama well seth when you figure out how to uh how to make those those fussy ducks come into a decoy spread with some consistency i'd like you to let me know because they seem to just want to circle me uh gadwalls are are a frustrating duck for me they they circle me eight times and then fly away so if you've got any pointers on that, let me know. Oh, yeah. All right, Seth. Well, man, we're going to enjoy having you on this season and get an idea of uh, where the ducks are in the state of Alabama. And appreciate you being on the show. We'll talk to you soon. Looking forward to it, guys. Okay. All right, Clint. That was a pretty good waterfowl report. We're going to switch gears a little bit and get into a rut report. You know, one of the interesting things about Alabama is that we have seven different unique rutting zones within the state. And... What that means is that a guy who purchases an Alabama hunting license can literally start on the first day of bow season and hunt some phase of the rut until the last day of rifle season in February. So almost four months of continuous rut hunting if a guy's willing to travel. Uh, so that's a really cool, unique opportunity. Uh, I don't, I don't know that there's anywhere else in the country that has that that kind of opportunity, but we're going to bring somebody on today who can tell us that we've got the, uh, we've got the youth weekend coming up this week. And we've also got a special rifle hunt 
coming up uh, in the Black Warrior Wildlife Management Area up in northwest Alabama. So, you know, without further ado, we've got Matt Brock on the line. Matt Brock is the Northwest Alabama Technical Assistance Biologist for the Alabama Department of Conservation and Natural Resources. Matt, welcome to the show. Well, I'm glad to be here. Well, Matt, you cover, tell me a little bit about the area you cover. Well, I started my career with the Alabama Department of Conservation on Black Warrior Wildlife Management Area. Uh, I was there almost four years, and then I transferred to a technical assistance biologist. So I primarily meet with landowners, make recommendations, help them manage their property, collect biological samples, have a very diverse job. Sounds like a fun job to me. (laughs) Yes, it is. Now, in the northwest portion of the state, uh, that's where we have some of the earliest earliest, uh, rutting zones, right? That is correct, yes. Uh, Black Warrior Wildlife Management Area is very unique. In 1925 and 1926, there were slightly over 100 deer, uh, both sexes, brought in from Iron Mountain, Michigan. And we have maintained an early breeding date in that area ever since. Talk a little bit about that in terms of breeding dates. There's a lot of, of, you know, we'll say information, maybe it's misinformation, a lot of folklore that goes around about what triggers rutting activity. Is it purely genetics? It seems to be highly genetic. Deer in certain areas of the country are basically pre-programmed or predetermined to come into estrus at the same time each year and we have found that to be the case here that breeding dates really don't vary depending on moon phase or uh, weather Uh, it's pretty consistent from one year to the next so if a guy wanted to plan his vacation and come to black warrior wildlife management area and hunt the rut when you say uh, peak breeding uh, Mm -hmm. is that the ideal time to hunt or does a guy want to be there before that is uh, you you're are the does are the bucks going to be locked down on the does during peak breeding, or when would you hunt? Well, I, st- I think that that's still up for debate. Uh, I'll give you my personal opinion. I like to hunt about ten to fourteen days before the peak uh, breeding cycle, um, which would be right now if you want to hunt black warrior. You have a few deer that are coming in uh, that first week of November, but the peak breeding cycle is usually between about 11.20 to December the 2nd. So around that Thanksgiving, um, a lot of times it's very good uh, during the muzzleloader hunt. And we do have that special uh, rifle hunt coming up right now. So, you know, if peak breeding is at the end of, of November to early December, then I want to be there right now. Right. So, well, we've got you've got that rifle hunt coming up this weekend. you got a good cold front coming in. Uh, so I look forward to talking with you next week and finding out just how that hunt went. If some bucks went down. I'm sure they will. You've also got some really big bucks, uh, because of the same, I guess that same genetic strain that came down from Michigan, it leads to some really large antlers there as well, doesn't it? Yeah, that is the theory. And also, uh, if you, if you look at where Black Warrior is located, uh, just to the North, you fall off into the Tennessee Valley. There's a lot of agriculture in the Tennessee Valley, and what we have found through trail cameras is a lot of the bucks that are killed on Black Warrior Wildlife Management Area were spending the summer months down there feeding on summer crops like soybeans, Ah. and then they come up into the hills up on the management area during the winter. So you have a a really good scenario there. Number one, the genetics are there. Uh, Number two, you have a, a good food source in the valley. 
Also, you have a good age structure. Uh, the last few years, our three and a half plus uh, buck harvest has been 50% or greater. Wow. That's impressive on public land. Very impressive. Well, Matt, I got to ask you one question before we let you go. You've killed some big bucks, I know. So when you're hunting this phase of the rut that we're in right now, uh, what kind of tactics can you use uh, to increase your chances? I always try to find out where I know that a, a few does are going to be feeding. Try to cut off the travel corridors. And, and Black Warrior is very unique in that it's got a very unique topography and landscape compared to what most people get to hunt in Alabama. You have a lot of bluffs, big ridge tops that are upland hardwoods, mixed pine hardwoods. If you can find a crossing in between those bluffs, and some of these bluffs drop off 20, 40, 50 feet. Uh, if you can find a crossing there, deer are going to cruise through there looking for receptive does. Great tips. Great tips. Well, Matt, we look forward to having you back on the show, and thank you for your uh, your insight into the area. Keep an eye on those bucks for us. Let us know. We'll talk to you again soon. All right. Thank you very much. All right, Clint. That was some good reports. I'm really excited about getting out there and getting after some of those rut and whitetails. I, I, uh, it's always an exciting time of year. You never know what what's going to come strolling through the woods at any minute. You know, something else I'm excited about is really two – the discussion we're going to have today, and, and that's a series that we're going to be starting called Wildlife Management Through and Not In Spite Of Forest Management. And it, we're going to be discussing two of my favorite things, and that's that's having more opportunities for hunting on, on my property, more game, more targets, and uh, and also growing, you know, growing better trees and making more money. Uh, so, you know, I mean, really... Really, it's all about that. It's all about growing bigger bucks, whether you're talking about deer or talking about dollars. But it really, it also gets into quail and turkeys and squirrels and rabbits and providing places for migratory birds that come down and everything that goes along, that, along with that. So, Clint, you own and have managed thousands uh, and probably sold at this point close to maybe even 100,000 acres of different types of recreational land, timberland around the state of Alabama, Mississippi, Florida. Why do you think most landowners are leaving their forests unmanaged? Well, it a lot of times it's, it's a financial issue for them or they don't know what to do or not to do, so they're concerned that they're going to mess up. Um, most of them are want a true professional to consult with but they don't really know what direction to, to go in is that a wildlife biologist is it a consultant forester is it both so they you think that they perceive that the costs of managing their land are are going to outweigh the benefits of doing so many times yeah they think they can do it themselves right and um sometimes they think that's just uh depending on what uh you know, really what we're talking about, it could be just about uh, population management. And they don't think about habitat as much as they do about how many food pots do I have, how many bags of corn or supplemental feed can I put out as opposed to truly managing habitat. Well, uh, it's, a, it's an interesting conversation, and we're going to bring on some uh, heavy hitter today. We've got Ted DeVos with us with Bach and DeVos. Ted, tell us a little bit about your background in, in quail management and forest management and uh, and how you got to where you are. Appreciate it. I'm a forester and wildlife biologist both. Got a forester degree out of Louisiana Tech and a wildlife degree out of Auburn. And uh, I did a lot of years of uh, quail research. We did a lot of radio telemetry stuff uh, down in Florida. And then I did some for uh, Auburn as well. My master's project was a quail-oriented uh, radio telemetry project. 
And uh, so I spent a lot of years following quail around. And, and generally in the early years, you know, when the tall timbers, if we could catch something and put a radio on it, we would follow them around too. So, you know, we did a lot of turkeys and wood ducks and um, even tagged a few deer uh, back in the early 80s. So that was kind of, you know, my cutting my eye teeth on, you know, wildlife and timber orientation type stuff. Since then, been managing uh, private lands in Alabama um, with the Bach and Voss, my partner Rod Bach, and I handle a lot of private lands, uh, primarily recreational landowners that have, you know, some interest either, you know, primarily in wildlife or partially in wildlife with, you know, timberlands, of course. And um, so that's, you know, your subject matter you're talking about is pretty much what we do is to try and, you know, integrate that, you know, wildlife management portion into their timber management uh, on their properties. And, you know, some of these landowners are going to be all about wildlife habitat, uh, you know, quail especially. And uh, the timber's, you know, not only secondary, but it's way down the list. Some landowners, you know, I know Clint runs into this too, where they're just primarily going to be timber oriented. They like to uh, utilize the wildlife that come along with, you know, classic timber management. And there's things you can do, you know, to enhance wildlife populations, even on, you know, straight timber management properties, prescribed burning, things like that, food plot work, you know, that can provide an assist to your to your wildlife. And um, but it's, you know, I mean, it's a real entertaining thing to do. It's challenging and may not be the best way to make a whole lot of money, but it's certainly a, a very rewarding type of job to, you know, work with all these different private property owners. Well, Ted, you know, in in the fitness industry, you've got people that, that want to lose fat and you've got people that want to gain muscle. Yep. And the holy grail is that, you know, that, that program that allows you to do both at the same time. So yes. is there such a thing when it comes to forest management and wildlife management is there such a is there such a program? Can you develop your timber and develop your wildlife at the same time? Well, I think a good way to look at this is, you know, there's, if you look at the extremes, then you can kind of figure out what's in the middle. So let's say you've got a straight timber, you know, ownership, you know, Regions Bank or an international paper company, you know, just timber company land that does not have any wildlife focus and they don't want to spend any money on wildlife, you know, you're going to have some deer and you're going to have some turkeys and that's going to be by the, you know, some squirrels in the bottoms, things like that. But your wildlife population is not uh, maximized by any extent and not really helped out much. They're not doing any burning. They're doing minimal food plots. And, you know, that's, that's the focus strictly on, on the timber management. And so what you're looking at is you're managing the, the vegetation at 60 feet, 80 feet, 100 feet off the ground. That's what you're after. You're trying to maximize the sunlight, the nutrients in the soil, the moisture, you know, rainfall to grow wood on trees. If you're on the other end of the spectrum and you're straight wildlife habitat, let's say quail guy, that doesn't care about the timber aspect at all. The timber is managed for the quail. And so they're maximizing all that productivity on the land in the wildlife habitat, which is, let's say, six foot and under. I mean, that's where that's where the, the meat and bones are on wildlife management. So it's all about the weeds and the grasses and the forbs and the legumes that are growing in the woods. And so a guy like that is carrying a lot less density of pine trees. And he's focused on getting all the productivity of those acres 
the sunlight, the nutrients in the soil, the moisture and rainfall uh, to be growing that understory vegetation, those you know weeds and grasses and things like that on the ground. And so that's your two extremes. And that's the way we look at it with our landowners. When we're riding around that first trip on a piece of property, we're trying to pick his brain and see what he's willing to give up because it's not that they're exclusive at all. They, they're very compatible, timber management, wildlife management. But there are sacrifices you have to make to maximize your wildlife habitat. And from a wildlife perspective, there's sacrifices you make to grow more timber. And and so it's, it's just kind of a uh, sliding scale in between those two extremes. Most of our landowners will fall probably leaning towards the wildlife side. And so things like burning and, and getting larger food plots, growing a little less timber per acre, at least number of trees, stocking rates are a little bit lower, um, and trying to grow more understory vegetation. That's what those guys are all about. And they still want to grow timber and they'll still make money off, off, you know, thinning and things like that. But, you know, we're going to focus on trying to make sure there is some type of wildlife habitat in the understory for, you know, deer, turkey, quail, things like that. And, you know, probably the most hard to get to is the quail end of things, the one that requires the most sacrifice. And if you look at a, let's say, quail plantation in Albany, Georgia, you know, they're carrying 20, 30 trees per acre. Whereas if that was timber managed, they'd be carrying 100 or 200 trees per acre of the same size class. So, you know, there is some sacrifices, but there's there's a you know, fairly simple with a few different techniques to, you know, try and blend the two of them together and, and you know, end up with a pretty good piece of property. So, Ted, if someone is a, is a landowner or if someone's a prospective landowner, where do they start? Where do they start with, you know, trying to find that, that happy medium if that's what they want? Well, and again, I'm sure, you know, Clint's been through this a gazillion times. First thing you're going to be doing with a prospective landowner that's looking for a piece of property is find out what he really wants. And right. just like when we ride around a, on a guy's property with a new landowner, figuring out what he wants out of that particular property, um, when you're looking to try and find a piece for somebody, you got to figure out, is he all about deer management? You know, is he willing to maximize the wildlife potential of the property or, you know, is timber a big part of it? And you can go search out those properties. So, you know, the guy that's, let's say, he's got more money needs to, you know, worry about uh, producing money off his property. He wants to, you know, grow high quality whitetail. Um, you know, he's interested in the high fence or he wants to buy a piece of property that has the housing and everything else. You know, you look for that particular type of property. If, um, if somebody's asking me, you know, I, I want to try and, you know, fix up a piece of property and manage it for wildlife. You know, we're going to lean them towards some type of pine upland type of habitat that we can manipulate a little bit better. Um, I always tell folks, that, you know, folks that are looking for hardwoods, they might they might find 500 acres of hardwoods. It's really they think it's great wildlife habitat. I look at it as a biologist and think that's crappy. So, you know, we're looking for for something that's got some diversity in it. Some a lot of uplands, some hardwood bottoms, things like that. That's key. I think what you just said was key is something that's got some diversity in it. What about Absolutely. what about management objectives by by the different type of of stand? So you know if you've got a let's say you got a hundred acres and you got forty acres of of pine plantation and you know twenty acres of of bottoms and things like that, are you able to you know look at a property and say, look, this forty acres is purely timber management, 
Uh, we're growing timber on this 40, but then on the rest, we're going to focus on, you know, we're going to focus on quail, say, you know, so if, if you're a quail guy, if, if a guy's got a hundred acre tract or is looking at buying one, can he do anything for quail on that size property? Or does it, you know, do you have to devote all your energy and all your property to that end? Well, you, you get into, you know, the realities of size and, and, um, if you're trying to do wild bird management, which a lot of folks want to do until they find out what it entails and then they realize that they're not capable of it and the, or they don't want to spend the money doing it from a wild bird perspective to truly get a wild bird population up and running that's suitable for hunting you're gonna to have to have a thousand acres and and ideally you'd have a thousand acres that's right next to some other neighbor that's got a thousand acres of quail habitat as well because there's economies of scale that start clicking in on quail populations so, for instance, Albany, Georgia, let's say, that area around there is 300,000 acres of contiguous quail-managed properties. And so, if you have 100 acres in the middle of that, you can manage quail all day long because you're utilizing the dynamics going on on your neighbor's property, predator control, prescribed burning, open piney woods, lots of broom straw and understory habitat, things like that, feeding programs that are, that are boosting quail populations. So, everybody around them has quail. If you try and do that in Alabama – you know, you could have a thousand acres in the middle of a pine plantation all around you that's, you know, full canopy, overstock, pine forest, 15 years of age, hadn't been thinned. And you create, you know, a beautiful quail woods, a thousand acres right in the middle of that. You still may not have a quail bird anywhere and you may have to restock. So the reality is, is that most people with a couple hundred acres should look towards creating that quail habitat, but then you're going to have to utilize pen-raised quail in some form or another, whether that's day of the release or preseason operations where you put birds out in the fall, hunt them through the winter. That's doable. It's very realistic. It's still a pen-raised bird, but you know, it's, you know, you shoot them in cubbies and you got to hunt them and find where they're at and things like that. So that's what we end up uh, finding out with most of our landowners. Like, yeah, I want to manage for quail. And, and you know, they got 300 acres and you drive around and look and talk and say you got to do brood fields and you got to do burning and you got to keep your pine stands lower density and all this kind of stuff. And all of a sudden they're like, eh, maybe I don't want to do quail, you know, because <laughs> deer and turkey are simply easier. You know, both of both deer and turkey are more adaptable to a variety of habitat types. Quail are very specific. They're very sensitive to predator populations and things like that. And they do need a lot of acres. And, uh, you know, deer come along with just about every property in the state of Alabama. So they're an easier species to manage for. Yeah. And something we run into a lot is, is in, in our part of the state and, and throughout, I think throughout the Southeast in general, there are a lot of people who have properties do they've managed. Well, they've, they've got the size requirement. You've mentioned they've managed the understory uh, the way they should, you know, probably a few of them have, or most of them still have more trees than, than you would like. But at the same time, the biggest problem they face is, is a lack of, of population. Uh, the yep. habitat's there. The birds aren't. Um, yep. And, if and that's a real common issue. Right. And if you wanted to promote that by bringing in the numbers and you've got the habitat, where do you put predator control on that list? Do you bring the birds in first or do you start with the predators to get those, make sure those numbers are down first? Or do you evaluate that after you bring the birds in? Well, predator control is pretty much going to be a part of an intense wild bird program there's and even turkeys to that extent um you know that that's going to be something that you're going to have to um utilize in some form or another and it's fairly time consuming and can be fairly you know financially consuming as well to you know do 
year round or almost a year round trapping and that type of thing. But if I've got a piece of raw ground, that's uh, let's say a 25 year old pine plantation, you know, with our idea of going, all right, we're going to start, you know, thinning this back and spray the sweet gums and do understory burning, create some quail plots and things like that scattered through this acreage of pine forest. Um, absolutely. I'd start on the, pro- the predator program right off the bat. Everything starts at once because once you create that quality habitat and you start getting the rats and the rabbits and things like that, the predator populations will explode. If you can get your thumb on them early in the process, it's easier to keep a population of coons and possums down than it is to bring them down once they've blossomed, you know, into what habitat you got out there. So, yeah, I mean, we'll start that predator control program uh, right off the bat in the, as we're starting to do the thinnings and the burnings and the sweet gum spray and things like that. I mean, and, and that's another big, you know, issue. You create a piney woods and all of a sudden sweet gums take over and, and you got to go in there and, you know, start spraying sweet gums and things like that to get that understory set up in the correct species mix. So, Ted, it, it seems like for quail property management, it, the first and foremost, if you don't already own property, Accounting for neighboring properties, if you're not able to buy a thousand acres, accounting for neighboring properties is, is key, probably first step in, in quail property management. So if you know you've, if you can get that hundred acres that's surrounded by other folks that are doing the, doing the things for quail that they need, that's probably step number one. Yep. Yep. And then after that, like what Clint was saying is if you do have a property, if you're in the right neighborhood uh, or you buy in the right neighborhood, Step number two is get a, get a handle on your predators first before you spend the money uh, elsewhere. Get a handle on your predators, uh, or is really does that is is that something that's going to be done in conjunction with a lot of other things? It's going to be all done at the same time, right? And you know this is the angle looking at it from a development standpoint too. That's you know if I've got a client that just bought some land, we're going to do wild bird management. That's the route I would take. That doesn't necessarily mean that. If I've got a piece of property that doesn't have suitable habitat and I do predator control, I'm going to start seeing quail. And you know, because you got to look at the reasons for the population decline in context of you know what your quail population is and and you know that type of thing. So predator control or predator populations are part of the problem we have, but they're not the main problem. They're only a real issue in those places where we have habitat that should have quail, then we say, yeah, populations are part of the issue. But if you've got 10,000 acres of planted pines, loblolly that are shaded out under story, predator populations don't make any difference to quail because there's no quail there to begin with because the habitat isn't there. You see what I'm saying? Yes. So, uh, so there's, actually there's step a whole two. lot that goes into why we don't have quail and Habitat's going to be the number one reason. There's a variety of habitat issues that quail have that are making them not suitable for what Alabama looks like right now. Right. So if quail are in your are, are in your eyesight, uh, step number one is, is get get in the right neighborhood first and foremost. And if and if you uh, do have enough uh, money to, or you already own the land, you got to get your habitat right first uh, before you can worry about. It. Now, if you don't have a a large population of wild birds and you're talking about bringing, you know, pen raised birds into hunt and that kind of thing. Is there, is there anything you can do to establish new birds? And there is, there's a, there's a couple ways. Um, you know, for instance, we worked with a, a large quail plantation 
that has a long history of being a quail plantation didn't you know had some issues with the bird populations and you know place like tall timbers through some contributions and things like that would help you get the permits and trap some birds from let's say south georgia some place that would allow some donor birds to be trapped off their property and bring them in to a place that wants to truly establish a wild bird population genetically pure wild quail that's an option there's a a, a technique that we've used over the last couple of years on some places it's called parent the parent reared system and where they have some you know true genetically wild birds that have been either caught up through research projects or hatched out eggs or whatever that, um, you know, been raised in a pen for like one generation. And those birds are raised in large pens. The eggs are all hatched out. 15 or 20 of them are snatched up the day they hatch out, and they're put into a pen with a wild hen that raises those birds in a expensive as, as can be because of the size of the acres and the, the labor um, demand to do this. But they're put in a pen for the hen to raise them. And, you know, they got feeding on insects and things like that. And the hens follow them around and doing all the calling and teaching them what it means to be a wild quail and to avoid predators and things like that. And those birds are gathered up at, uh, you know, three weeks, four weeks of age and they'll put them in boxes and we've had them, you know, delivered there. They might be six or seven times what it would cost you to buy a pen raised bird. But um, you can take these, you know, several week old chicks and release them in the late summer and, Try not to hunt them the coming year, and that is your breeding stock for the following year. Again, genetically wild population, and they're still going to suffer mortality, but that's you know good breeding stock. To do it with pen-raised quail is real problematic. There's pen-raised quail have some behavioral issues from being raised in a cage over you know let's say a 14-week-old bird released. Uh, matter of fact, that was one of my research projects was looking at pen-raised quail and and interactions with wild birds that existed on, on different sites. And if you put pen-raised birds out, let's say during the wintertime, if you don't shoot them, they're going to die. You know, they, they just don't make it. Right. If you put them out in the fall, um, let's say September, October, and in a time frame when there's a lot of prey items out there for other predators, so the quail aren't being hit that hard, and you baby them a little bit, feed them water, make sure they're taken well care of, they survive through the winter you know, at a, at a reasonable rate, and they do survive into the spring enough to breed. The problem, again, is there's some behavioral issues with a hen, let's say, that's raised in a cage, doesn't know everything she needs to know about being a quail. And so the coming summer, she sits on a nest and hatches a brood, and she's just not quite sharp enough to make sure she doesn't do a broke wing act six inches in front of a fox's nose. She's trying to protect the brood, but she gets killed doing it because she's not quite sharp enough to, to figure out that that's not a good idea. You know, we've seen them do broke wing acts on our feet and a wild bird would never do that. So she's so, hatched pen raised birds essentially. Yeah, they, they will. I mean, we've, we've had that several times and, and um, you know, where they do, if they're alive in the spring, which the odds of them getting there are low, but if they make it to the spring, they're going to try and breed and they successfully will breed, but they don't breed at the rates that a wild bird will. And they're not, they're just not as successful at it. I'm just still caught up on, on you saying that they have behavioral issues from being raised in a cage. I, I thought, I keep thinking you're talking about Clint. Yeah. <laughs> you know, behavioral issues are pretty common. My wife would agree. <laughs> Jumping back to the habitat development. I know there's a lot of programs out there that, you know, provided by the USDA, NRCS, FSA that promote habitat improvement and management through 
call share programs for landowners. Are there any yep. out there that you've been exposed to that you really like or recommend people pursue after they own yeah. land? There is. There's there's several programs out there. Um, uh, the money varies year to year uh, on these different programs, what kind of money is available. But, you know, through the last 10 years or so, for instance, there's been programs that will cost share you to spray sweet gums. There's programs that, you know, if you're doing a quail oriented type thing, they may, you know, cost share you to, to do ragweed fields for brood habitat, which is, you know, the number one superior brood habitat out there is just growing ragweed and which is fairly cheap fall discing things like that uh there's programs that you know might help you with burning especially you know getting into some growing season burns there's a little more money out there available for that type of thing there's some programs available for for instance if you've got a 20 something year old pine stand working on your second thin your standard thinning operation for forestry is going to be you know cutting that stand back to let's say a 70 basal area and that's a whole another thing you probably want to get into another podcast about timber management but the standard forestry practices are going to uh, be to thin that stand back to about a 70 basal area. There are some programs that will cost share you to thin that stand back to a 50 basal area. And they may give you a little more money if you thin that stand back to a 30 basal area. And again, it's all kind of encouraging landowners to grow a few less trees per acre to grow a little bit more wildlife habitat in the understory trying to think of what other programs there's some stuff that there, there's some things for planning and certainly longleaf you know that's a big program trying to establish longleaf and, and longleaf suitable ground uh there's usually a lot of money available for that and and encouraging the burning that goes along with growing a longleaf stand that t- typically is is helpful for creating wildlife habitat so you know there's money out there we encourage landowners to uh figure out kind of where they want to go, what programs and projects they would like to complete on the property to get to there, and then take those things into the NRCS office or whatever and say, look, here's the different projects I'm up against, and you know, is there any money this year for A, B, or C? Right. Well, Ted, it's been enlightening. Uh, folks, if you want to get in touch with Ted, you can check him out online at Bach and DeVos Forestry and Wildlife Services. Ted, I look forward to having you back on the show. And folks, if you've got any questions uh, that you want to ask Ted in the next round, just check us out at greatdaysoutdoors.com slash huntingland. And you can submit a question there. You can also, we will email you the podcast every week. Uh, we're going to be hitting on, on this topic a lot more. Wildlife management through forest management and not in spite of. Thanks again, Ted. We'll see you Appreciate guys next time. Thanks, Ted. Right, thanks. All right, Clint, that was a great discussion on duck habitat and how to improve it and you know everything we can do to hopefully put some more birds down. But I want to talk with you about how you can still manage your, your forest sustainably and have duck habitat. And one of the common misconceptions I think that's out there is that you can't harvest trees in a wetland. You've had some experience with that, right? Right, right. And I'd, I'd start with being clear that anytime you want to do that make sure you consult with a professional that you understand what you're doing understand the law kind of like tom mentioned about you know bringing in the core you know making sure what you do and don't have to have a permit for but in terms of of silviculture forestry there is an exclusions to the wetlands act and this is a very layman uh, explanation of it but essentially you can harvest timber from a wetland you just can't change it or stop it from being a wetland and what that means is is if you've got a cypress pond, for example, you can thin or harvest all the cypress out of it, but you can't then turn around and backfill it with dirt. 
to make it a nice building lot. Mm-hmm. That part you would need a permit for. Right. Well, I mean, forestry is a, it's an artful science in that way. And, uh, you know, it, I think that that's most of the outdoorsmen that I know that either own land or want to own land, they know that a forest is m- more than just trees. You know, it's made up of uh, the, the air around it, the wildlife in it, the, the diseases that can have an effect on it and the people that come out there to enjoy it. And so you do have to be cognizant of uh, of the future anytime you're doing things. Using a consultant forester is, is a big part of that, I think, and making sure you talk about what are your goals for the property and what are your objectives for the property and letting them give you professional advice on how to do that correctly. Correct, because there, there's different goals for everybody. It's not always uh, financial goals. It's not always a wildlife-based goal, which typically in our experience a, a blend but the main thing is you hire that professional and you tell them what your goal is and let them tailor your management plan to that. Uh, it's kind of like we've heard from several different people about how to manage for different aspects, whether that, you know, be waterfowl or quail or, you know, our, our pure money. But you've, you've got to identify your goal, understand your goal, and then they can tailor that for you. Right. Well, folks, if you've got more questions about managing your property, not only for valuable forests, but also valuable wildlife email us head on over to greatdaysoutdoors.com slash hunting land and if you don't like the show or you'd like us to email it to you drop us a line at pros at landhunting.com and remember that land hunting no g we appreciate you listening and we'll catch up with you next week